September the 11th, 2001, is a date that will forever be etched into the fabric of our minds. Many of us can remember with vivid clarity where we were and what we were doing when we heard the news that planes had been hijacked by terrorists and flown into the Twin Towers of New York City and the Pentagon of Washington, D.C. In stunned horror, we huddled around television screens in our homes and offices and schools. All day long, we were numb as the death toll continued to rise. On that day, we felt as a nation sucker punched. We didn't know exactly how to process the information. We didn't quite know what to make of it. We didn't know what to do. I was then the pastor of First Baptist Church Owenton in Owenton, Kentucky. And like many churches on that night, we opened our doors to the community and allowed people to come in just to pray, read scripture, find comfort. On that night, I'll never forget what Miss Wilma Perkins did. Wilma Perkins was a sweet elderly lady. She had been a school teacher for 50 plus years in Owen County. She was a pillar in that church and in that community. In calm confidence, she got up from her seat as she normally positioned herself in the back of the sanctuary. She made her way to the front with her worn-out, tattered, torn, maroon-colored Bible in hand. She opened it, and with a calm confidence, she read the words of Psalm 46. After she read those 11 verses, she closed her Bible, and with the same confidence that she read, she walked back to her seat and took her place. On that night, I can't remember very much that was spoken, but I will never forget what she did. At some way and some means, the, the words of that psalm minister to me at my deepest level. I realized that everything was going to be all right because of Psalm 46. I knew that everything was going to be okay. There was a confidence amid the crisis. Today we come to our next sermon in our series of the Summer of Psalms. And I want us to focus our attention on Psalm 46. Over the last 15 plus years, this is a psalm I've reached to on numerous occasions. When things are in turmoil, topsy-turvy, upside down, suffering, tragedy, crisis strikes, I don't quite know what to do. I reach for this psalm, Psalm 46. With that in mind, I invite you to take a Bible, turn there. Once you've found your place, please stand in reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. A quick glance at Psalm 46 reveals that this is a poem with three stanzas. All three stanzas have three verses. There's verse 1, 2, and 3, stanza 1. Verses 4, 5, and 6, stanza 2. Verses 8, 9, and 10, stanza 3. There is a refrain that's repeated at the end of stanza 2, and the same refrain is repeated at the end of stanza 3. That's verses 7 and verses 11. Out of all the words of the 11 verses, the most important word is the first word, God. This is a psalm about God. This is a declaration of confidence in God. Oftentimes we quote that first line and we might emphasize a different word. We may emphasize the word refuge or the word strength or the phrase ever-present help in time of trouble. All those are good words, don't misunderstand me. But all of those words describe and define the greatest word, which is the first word in the entire psalm. God and God alone is our refuge. God and God alone is our strength. God and God alone is our ever-present help in time of trouble. So our trust is not in money, military, or our might. Our trust is in God and God alone. We do not trust our retirement fund, our diversified financial portfolio, human achievement, and human accomplishment. Our trust, our confidence, our blessed assurance is in God and God alone. For as the psalmist declares, our God is our refuge, strength, and ever-present help in time of trouble. To say that he's our refuge is to say that he is our shelter, he is our fortress. It is a symbol of Sturdy security. God is our refuge. To say that God is our strength is to not only imply that our God aids us so that we can ward off the enemy, but it's also a word that implies an inner fortitude. Our God is within us. He strengthens us from within. We get up every day and face whatever the day throws at us because we have God at our side and God is within us. So he strengthens us for whatever crisis may come our way. It's never a question of will crisis come. It's a question of how will you handle the crisis once it arrives on your doorstep. The psalmist says, I can handle anything that the world throws at me. Why? Because God is my strength. He helps me to ward off the enemy and he gives me inner fortitude, strength, so I can handle the day. The psalmist says he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. This means that God is always with us. He never abandons us, but he always accompanies us, even in the midst of the deep, dark valley. He is never asleep at the wheel. He never takes his hand off. Elsewhere, the psalmist will declare, he watches over our coming and our going, both now and forevermore. So God knows where you are and who you are. He knows where he's placed you. He knows where you've wandered to. He watches over our coming and our going. 
God knows that you're here today. You can't outrun him. You can't outmove the eye of God. He knows where you are, whether you're across the street or across the world. He knows because he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. He never abandons us. He's always there with us. C.H. Spurgeon, as he thought about this phrase, he says, God is closer to us than even our shadow. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. So because God is God, the psalmist says, I will not fear. I have nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because God is God. Because God is God, I will not fear. The truth of the matter is the word fear ought to be taken out of the Christian vocabulary. We have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. We are not afraid of death. We're not afraid of life. We're not afraid of crisis. We're not afraid of catastrophe. We're not afraid of suffering. We're not afraid of trial. We're not afraid of tragedy. We're not afraid of setback. There's nothing that we fear. Why? Because God is God and we belong to him and he belongs to us. So because God is God, I will not fear, the psalmist says. I will not fear. Fear ought to be taken out of your Christian vocabulary. You have nothing to fear, even though the world gives way, even when your world turns upside down, even when everything falls apart. You're not going to fear. Why? Because God is God. I will not fear even when the mountains fall into the sea. In poetry, everything is symbolic, and a, a mountain is a symbol of strength and security. And what the psalmist is saying is that even when my strength and my security is cast into the raging sea, and also in poetry, the imagery of sea is that imagery of confusion and chaos and turmoil. And so uh, he says that, that even my symbols of strength, even when they have been cast into the sea, I will not be afraid. When the things that I trust in, when the things I depend upon, when my health, when my money, when all that runs out, that's okay. I will not fear. Why? Because God is God. I will not be afraid even when the mountain is cast into the sea. And even when that sea is tumultuous for it is roaring and foaming, I will not be afraid. I will not even be afraid when the mountains quake with their surging. I have nothing to be afraid of. Even when airplanes fly into buildings, even when terrorists bomb innocent civilians, even when there is an attack on our faith, I will not fear. I will not fear regardless of what the pollsters say. I will not fear regardless of what the culture demands. I will not fear even when cancer cripples the bodies of my loved ones. I will not fear even when there's an unemployment uh, uh, in the horizon. I will not fear when there is more month than money. I will not fear, the psalmist says. Why? Because God is God. And he is our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Oh yes, make no mistake about it. This is a psalm about God. It's a psalm about the author's confidence in God. Where did the author get this confidence? What is the background of the story? Every psalm, every song has a background to it. What's the background of this psalm? What's going on historically? What's going on in the nation of Israel? What is happening in these days to cause the psalmist to write these words? There's a little bit of debate about what exactly is the backstory. Perhaps the most logical explanation is the story that's told for us in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. 
That the story in 2 Kings 18 and 19 serve as the backdrop, the backstory of why the author writes Psalm 46. In 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah became king at the age of 25 years old, fresh out of college. It's a pretty good gig. It's a pretty good first job, don't you think? To land as the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He ruled and reigned for some 29 years in the capital city of Jerusalem. The Bible says that Hezekiah was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. He pleased the Lord. He made it his objective to honor God. Listen to his resume. Hezekiah brought down the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. And he cut down the Asherah poles. Now, those things may not mean a whole lot to you, but it's one thing for somebody to say, uh, I want to lead people into holiness. It's another thing to actually do it. And Hezekiah was not just a man of words, he was a man of action. So he led the southern kingdom of Judah in holiness. And the way he did that is he made some tough decisions. And some of the tough decisions were these. He went out and saw on on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, there were hills. And atop those hills, there were pagan altars. And he went up there and he brought down the high places. He took those sacred stones, those stones that were used in pagan worship, and he smashed them. And those Asherah poles, oh, God-forsaken things were done around the Asherah poles. Immoral, unethical, sensual, sexual, debauchery, all types of immorality was done around the Asherah poles, all in the guise of religion. And Hezekiah went and cut down the Asherah poles. This is not the point of the sermon, but it is a pretty good sidebar, so I'll tell you. Whenever... Revival comes. Idols are always smashed. Let me say it another way. The only way for revival to come is for idols to be smashed. I mean, when, when people get serious about God, idols have to fall. You say, well, what are idols? We don't have any Asherah poles. Really? We don't have any sacred stones. Oh, yeah? We don't have any high places. Are you kidding me? Anything that dominates your attention, your affection, your time, your talents, and your resources, that's your idol, my friend. And when revival comes, those things must be brought down. They can even be good things that have to be brought down. Hezekiah not only brought down the obvious, not just cutting down the Asherah pole or smashing the sacred stones, not just bringing down the high places, but his resume also includes this. He destroyed that bronze serpent. Now, if you know anything about Judah's history, you remember that that bronze serpent was a good serpent. It was a gift from God. Hundreds of years earlier, when Moses was leading the people out of their Egyptian captivity, they did what religious people tend to do. They began to complain and argue. And because they're complaining and because they're arguing, God sent fiery serpents in the camp. And whenever a serpent would bite one of those complaining Israelites, it wasn't very long before that Israelite would drop dead. It didn't take long for them to discover, you know what, maybe we should not be complaining so much. Maybe we shouldn't be arguing and bickering so much. Moses, can you please ask God to help us? So Moses went on behalf of the people before the Lord and said, Lord, what can we do here? 
And God gave Moses these instructions. I want you to fashion a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, put it in the middle of camp. Anyone who's been bitten by one of those fiery serpents, if he or she looks up to that bronze serpent, they will immediately be healed. If they do not look up, they will not be healed. Moses, in obedience, did what God told him to do. He fashioned the bronze serpent. He placed it on a pole, set it in the middle of the camp. And many people looked up and they were healed. God had helped them. So they thought to themselves, that's a good snake. That's a great snake. And when they broke camp, somebody had a bright idea. Hey, let's retrieve that snake. Let's keep it. It's a good snake. And in good Baptist fashion, I can well imagine, they formed a committee. And they had a committee in charge of that serpent, of that snake. It was the SOS committee, save our snake, right? It was the SOS committee. And people would long to be on that committee. And from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, people were told that you were on the SOS committee, save our snake. You've got to preserve this thing. You've got to protect this thing. This thing has helped us in the past. God has used it. This is a good thing. But in the days of Hezekiah, hundreds of years later, We are told that the Israelites, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, God's people, they were worshiping that snake. They were burning incense to it. They were worshiping something good that God had given them, and they had turned it bad. They they were worshiping that serpent. They were worshiping that snake. And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah steps in, and he smashes the serpent in pieces. He's not the most popular man in the camp anymore. They said, what are you doing? That's our snake. That's our tradition. That's what we've had for hundreds of years. What are you doing messing with our snake? You've just messed up the SOS committee. And Hezekiah said, I'm more allegiant to God than to you. Whenever revival breaks out, Idols have to fall. Hezekiah was a good king. He did the right thing. He has a great resume. In fact, the scripture says, of all the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, there's no one greater than Hezekiah. That's pretty high mark, don't you think? There's no one greater than Hezekiah and all the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you read your scripture very much, you realize that typically it's the kings of the north, Israel, they're the bad ones. And the kings of the south, Judah, they're the good ones. And of all the good ones, Hezekiah was the best of the best. He was one of the greatest kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a good man. And he ruled to please the Lord. But they were tough times. Hezekiah could read the terrain. He knew that Israel, the northern kingdom, they were about to fall. The Assyrian army was breathing down their throats. He also could look south and see Egypt, and Egypt was always a threat to come up from the southern uh, kingdom, southern area, uh, to overwhelm the southern kingdom of Judah. So, So Hezekiah understood that he was between a rock and a hard place. He had Israel above him, and they were about to fall to the bullies, the Assyrians. And he had Egypt that was always hot on his tail. The Assyrian king was a man by the name of Sennacherib. You and I would call him a punk. He was a bully. Nation after nation was falling because of Sennacherib. 
he was coming after Israel. Once he took Israel, he had his sights set on Judah. So before Israel even fell, this Sennacherib, who is a very arrogant dude, he does not know God, doesn't care about God. Um, he sends a letter to Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the letter, he says in so many words, do not be deceived. Haven't you heard how all these other nations have fallen left and right? And their so-called gods didn't help them. Do you think that your God is going to deliver you from me? I am Sennacherib. I am the king of Assyria. Israel's about to fall. And history will prove that they did fall to the Assyrians. And Sennacherib said, once Israel falls, I'm coming after you, Judah. Now, what do you do when you get a letter like that? What do you do when a catastrophe is right on your doorsteps? What do you do when everywhere you turn, it looks like there's crisis above you and beneath you, to the left of you, to the right? What do you do? It would be tempting to fire back another letter at Sennacherib, wouldn't it? It would be tempting to put a vicious post on Facebook. It would be tempting to fire off a tweet, wouldn't it? It would be tempting just to stand up and dig your heels in the sand. It would be tempting to defend yourself. But do you know what Hezekiah did? He went to church. He ran to the temple with a letter in hand. He spread the letter before the Lord. He fell before the Lord and asked a four-word phrase, what shall I do? That's a pretty good example, don't you think? I mean, have you ever found yourself between a rock and a hard place? You ever had crisis to, in front of you, behind you, left of you, or right? You ever been surrounded by turmoil and suffering? You ever been threatened by the intimidating bully on your playground? Have you ever had anybody threaten you to say, hey, I'm coming after you. You're next, and not even your God can protect you. You ever had a crisis like that? What do you do? Well, Hezekiah, he takes the letter, goes to the house of God, and says to God, what shall I do? There may be some of you here this morning, and you just need to voice that prayer. Just take your concern, your crisis, take your frustration, take your problem to the Lord, and just ask him, what shall I do? And the word of God came to Hezekiah through the person of Isaiah. God answered the prayer. Isaiah, the prophet, came and said to Hezekiah, um, this is what God says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not fire one arrow into this sacred city. He will not step foot in Jerusalem. He will not bring one shield against you. He will not bring one rampart against the iron gate. He will not come against Jerusalem. And that night, the angel of God went in the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Before they could wake up the next morning, God had taken care of the problem. Before the, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah could worry and wonder before anything could happen, before anything could be done, God took care of the problem and he killed them in the midst of the night and 185,000 of them didn't even wake up the next morning. You can check my math. It's stated right there in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. 
185,000. When the Assyrians wake up, their military is in disarray. They don't know what to do. So they hightail it back to the capital city of Nineveh and they go back and not one arrow is shot into Jerusalem. Not one shield comes against the king, the kingdom of Judah. Nothing is brought against the southern kingdom. Why? Because God is God. And God took care of it. The author of this psalm knows his history. This is why he says in stanzas 2 and 3, God is within her. This is verse 5. She, being Jerusalem, will not fall. God will help her at break of day. When they woke up the next morning, they looked out, 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers dead. And who did it? God. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He, being God, lifts his voice and the earth melts. Our God is so strong. He is so powerful. He doesn't even have to roll up his sleeves. All he has to do is speak it and it happens. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. Look in stanza three, verses eight and nine. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Not one arrow, not one shield came against the city of Jerusalem. And why? Because God defended her. I think this is the backdrop of why the psalmist writes Psalm 46. He has great confidence in God because what God has done in the past. Look at what God did. He destroyed the Assyrians. They did not come against the southern kingdom of Judah. History proves this is exactly accurate. They did not come against the southern kingdom. They did destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, but not the southern kingdom of Judah. And God did this. So the psalmist says, because that's how God acts, we can have great confidence in our God. Our God defends his own. Our God protects his people. We are with God. Therefore, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. In the second stanza, the author speaks of that river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. This river is twofold. Number one, Hezekiah was responsible for constructing the underground aqueducts that brought water into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a city that's located near a river uh, or a waterway. And so Hezekiah was the one who ordered for the underground aqueducts to be built so that they could have uh, literally a river under the streets. But this is poetry. It's poetry, symbolic. And also in poetry... I said that a sea is turmoil, tragedy. But wherever there is a calm river, that's symbolic of God's salvation. Jeremiah said, there's a spring of living water. Zechariah said, there will be a fountain that will cleanse sin and iniquity. Jesus said in John chapter 7, anyone who believes in me, streams of living water will well up inside of him. John says in Revelation chapters 22, behold the river of God that is clear as crystal coming from the throne of God, going right down the middle of the street of that great heavenly city. Wherever there is a river in poetry and in symbolic literature, that river is symbolic of God's salvation. So here, 
The psalmist is saying, who defended us? Who protected us? Who provides for us? The answer is God. God is the most important word in the entire psalm. So at the end of the third stanza, it is the author who says, uh, as he's quoting God, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What he's saying is stop listening to CNN. Stop listening to MSNBC. Stop even watching Fox News. Stop listening to all the experts. Stop listening to all the talking heads. God declares, I will be exalted in all the nations. And God will be exalted. So he says, be still and know I am God. This psalmist is declaring great confidence in God. You've probably heard that phrase before, be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes we misunderstand it. It's not, a, it's not a command for a contemplative life. It's not a command for laziness. Be still and know that I'm God. Literally, it means take your hands off your weapons. Lay your weapons down. Be still and know that I'm God. Surrender everything unto me. I'm in charge, you're not. Be still and know that I'm God. Lay down your arms. Lay down your weapons. Take your hands off your weapons. Friends, there are some of you in the house today, and you've got your hands on your arsenal. Because you're going to fix the problem. The problem that you face, you're going to fix it. You're going to alleviate it. You're smart enough. Uh, You can handle it. You're going to fix it. And what God is telling some of us is be still and know that I'm God. You can't fix it. Just take your hands off your weapons. All those things you can control, all those things you can handle. Let God be God and acknowledge that you're not God. If this song could be summed up in one sentence, I think it would be summed up in something like this. That the secure life can only be found in a life that's surrendered to God. The secure life is a life that can only be found in in a life that is surrendered to God. The refrain, verses 7, verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty, that's a word that means... uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of the universe, he's with us. And the God of Jacob, that's the same person, the God of Jacob, the Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, God of Jacob, he is our fortress. Can I tell you one more story before I sit down? I'm going to anyway. So. When you think about the Lord Almighty, the God of hosts, there's a great little story that's tucked away in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, Israel, the northern kingdom, now typically they're the ones that are going to fall sooner. They're made up of not so great kings, but the northern kingdom of Israel, they still have the promises of God. And before they fall, the Syrians are coming against them, the king of Aram. The Syrians are coming against them. And in the northern kingdom, there's a prophet by the name of Elisha. And Elisha is a powerful dude. I mean, he, is, he knows God. He hears God. He speaks for God. 
So the king of Aram, he calls all of, it, all of his uh, experts to him and he says, listen, which one of you is against us? They said, none of us. Well, then how in the world does Israel always know what I'm about to do before I do it? One of you must be cheating on us. One of you must be guilty of espionage. One of you must be going against enemy lines. They said, no, 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 it's not us. It's that prophet named Elisha. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. They said, it's as if he knows what you speak even in your bedroom. It's like he has the palace bugged, right? And so Elisha knows. It's almost as if he's on the payroll of God. As if God is telling him what you're thinking. And before you can even say it, Elisha tells Israel what to do. And they do it and it averts the crisis. So the king of Aram said, you, you bring me Elisha right now. Find out where he is. Oh, he was in Dothan. Not Dothan, Alabama. Dothan in the other part of the world. They found out he was in Dothan. So the king of Aram sent a massive army to Dothan. They found the house where Elisha was staying. He was in the valley. There was a, a hill that surrounded that house. And those chariots of the Syrian army positioned themselves one beside the other all the way around 360 degrees. The next morning, the servant of Elisha woke up, went outside the house, went to go get some water, looked up and went, oh my goodness. Look at all these chariots. Look at this Syrian army. He runs back in the house. He says, Master Elisha, we're not going to survive this thing. We're all going to die. And Elisha makes an infamous quote. He said, there are more with us than there are with them. Lord, please open his eyes so that he can see. Servant, go back out there. The servant walks back out and God lifted the veil and God showed the servant all the angels that were around. And the angels, the host, the God of the host, they were all there. And those that were with Elisha far outnumbered those who were with them. Friends, I want to tell you that if you are with God, if you are on God's side, if God dwells inside of you, I don't care what the circumstance is, you are never outnumbered because greater are those who are with us than those who are with them, with the adversary. I want you to know that if you have God, God is enough. When the enemy comes against you, God is enough. When the adversary attacks you, God is enough. When temptations overwhelm you, God is enough. When cancer cripples you, God is enough. When unemployment is given unto you, God is enough. Regardless of the, of the crisis, regardless of the catastrophe, you can have confidence. Why? Because God is enough. There are far more with us than those that are with them. Amen. So the God of Jacob is our fortress. Jacob, that trickster, but God made a promise to Jacob. I'll bring you back to the land. And God is always making good on his promises. So whatever God promises, he will do. And here the author says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The promise-keeping God is our refuge, our shelter, our symbol of significant strength. So we will not fear. 
Because God. Because God. Because God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Now do you see why whenever catastrophe comes, I reach for this psalm? This is the psalm I reach to. It reminds me of who God is. It reminds me of who I am. It reminds me that there are far many more with us than those that are with them. So be still and know that he is God. Friend, I'm telling you, some of you are here today and you need to lay down your arms. Take your hands off your weapons. Let God be God. And you can declare with the psalmist, God is my refuge, my strength, my ever-present help in time of trouble. This psalm is not just given to the people of the Old Testament. This psalm is given to all of God's people. Will you take it as your own so that you can have confidence amid crisis? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this psalm. It's a psalm that's helped me. It's a psalm that's helped many. It's a psalm that is needed today. And so, Father, we pray that there's somebody here who has not trusted you as God. I pray that today that they will hear your good news and respond and allow Jesus to be Christ of their life. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You did not negotiate with the enemy. You conquered the enemy so that you can declare it is finished. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We lay our burdens at your feet. We ask, what shall I do? You answer, we'll respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.